The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. So I'm continuing a, for maybe another week uh, the talks on sila or ethical conduct and um, thought it would be nice to spend the last two weeks talking about right speech or how speaking, how what we say, what we don't say, how that really is so much a part of this practice of living in a way where we're not harming ourselves or harming others, not intentionally harming. In the last couple of weeks, I've been talking about this dynamic we find ourselves in in each moment where uh, we're having a sense experience. We're seeing something, thinking something, hearing something, feeling something in the body. And that sense experience is interacting with our bundle of dispositions. It's triggering things, habit energies. If we see something attractive or if we hear something that's interesting, it's interesting because of our dispositions. Because of the way our mind's conditioned, we find certain things interesting and we find other things sort of ordinary or not interesting. And so in that moment-to-moment interaction between our experience and our dispositions, what arises in in those moments, in every moment, are intentions. And the essence of sila practice or ethical conduct is learning to be mindful in the moment and to in a sense, uh, get a taste of the intention that's arising. Is it a wholesome intention? Is it an unwholesome intention? In a way, it's uh, we're kind of way behind the ball if we've already said something or thought something or done something, and now we're trying to reflect in hindsight, was that skillful? Was that unskillful? I mean, it's still better to do that than nothing. What we want to do is get closer and closer to the moment. And before we actually think something, before we actually say something or do something, just to notice the intention that's arising and just to get a sense. Is it that intention tainted by greed or aversion or denial? Or is it under the influence of compassion or some kind of basic warmth and tenderness and love of the heart or some wisdom, some clarity. This morning when I was giving this talk, it occurred to me, you know, I've been hearing this uh, metaphor all the time, maybe you have too in the news, about how making law, like the new health reform, is like uh, watching people make sausage, you know. You're better off not seeing it. Because it's messy, you know, and maybe even worse than messy. (laughs) And this is a little bit, too, with our minds. So in terms of this uh, place and practice of round right speech, it's, in a way, we've gotten in the habit of not looking, not looking to see where our words come from, like when we speak out in our lives and when we don't speak. You know, either way, both are intentional actions. Speaking is an intentional action. Not saying something is also an intentional action. It has consequences. 
So when we look, it's like we're watching sausage being made in the sense that we see, mostly we're oblivious, but when we look, we see that so much of what we say and don't say is under the influence of greed and aversion. We're, you know, we're trying to manipulate. We're trying to massage things in a certain way so that people like us or we get what we want in the world. And we're always doing this, except that we don't realize. The big thing is we don't realize we're doing this all the time. It's so commonplace. And the other part of it that's commonplace is to basically not own what we're doing. And in a way, in a very strange and unfortunate way, we're actually better at manipulating when we don't understand that we're manipulating because we're more convincing. I mean, when I start talking to my wife in a particular way, you know, about how I think things should be, and I start talking about how I, you know, all the supporting facts to my point of view, but leaving out that it's my point of view, you know, it's really kind of in the guise of like, this is the, this is what skillful people do, honey. <laughs> It's so much more compelling than if, if I'm sort of honest with myself and honest with her and say, you know, I have this need that things go this way or things are done this way, you know, and I, I, all, I feel insecure or I feel upset or if it's not done this way. But we, we don't do it that way. We kind of sort of couch it in a different way. So it has, you know, we think a better or more effective uh, impact on the other person or the other people. But this is exactly the work we want to do, not just with speech, but with all the areas. You know, the way the Buddha laid out the training, the trainings for lay people, he has five training areas for lay people and then three additional ones that you can take on from time to time. It's really nice to know this list. And this is something that as a community we recite together once a quarter around the equinoxes and solstices. Um, we come together on Sunday morning and we chant the five what are called precepts. But they're really, a better word would be the five trainings for lay people. And it's the undertaking the training not to harm living beings, undertaking the training not to take things that aren't offered to us, undertaking the training not to uh, engage in sexual misconduct, not to engage in false speech, harmful speech, and not to engage or use intoxicants in a way that cloud the mind. So these are the five basic trainings. And then uh, in times that feel appropriate, you can take up additional uh, three additional trainings. So uh, undertaking the training to eat only at appropriate times. And this is really like simplifying your life uh, at times when it feels appropriate so that your life isn't filled with a lot of eating. <laughs> and so tradition like lay people would go to the monastery from time to time when they had time, practice with the monks and nuns, and, and basically for that period of time, maybe just one day, maybe longer, they would uh, follow the way that they eat, which is for monks, maybe, but not always, the monks and nuns would have a meal early in the morning. But for sure they have one main meal around 10.30 or 11 and then they're done at noon. And except for tea or juice or something like that, they basically don't eat anything until the next morning after dawn. And it, I mean, it's a radical simplification. I mean, think about how much of our life 
is built around food, purchasing food, cooking the food, eating the food, cleaning up the dishes, deciding what we want to eat, figuring out what kitchen gadgets we need. I mean, just it goes on and on, what restaurants we like and which ones we don't like, and on and on like that. And so if you just have one main meal a day, it really simplifies things. And not only that, the mind is a lot clearer in the evening if you've had your main meal at 11 o'clock. Well, by 8 o'clock in the evening, your mind's really clear because you don't, your body isn't digesting food. When your body digests food, all the blood goes into your digestive organs. And you know how it is after your big meal, you just want to lie down. But when the belly is empty of food, it's like all the energy that's sort of revolving in the digestive system is free. And the system generally is more alive and awake, which is really conducive to practice. And monks and nuns and lay people at the monasteries would then practice into the evening as late as they feel comfortable practicing. And you tend not to need as much sleep, too, if you're not eating as much. So this is one of the, the eight precepts, so the additional three. So there are many ways to do this. But it's basically, these are just three ways of simplifying your life. Simplifying your life by uh, restricting how, you, how much you eat, when you eat. Simplifying your life by restricting your um, adornments, like how you adorn the body, not needing to sort of beautify the body for periods of time. Like you just, you don't have to be an attractive person in the world, just being really simple. You know, you don't have to spend time on your hair or ironing your clothes. and. It's like just kind of stripping that extra stuff out of your life. And the other part of that seventh precept is uh, refraining from entertainments, you know, not going to musical shows and all these sort of things. That are, this is part of that precept. And the idea is then, well, when you take away, you know, no internet access, no reading, no TV, no books, no idle conversations, well, that really frees up your evening for practice. <laughs> Which is exactly the idea. And then the, and then the eighth precept is um, undertaking the training to refrain from high and luxurious seats or beds. But the idea here really is not to use sleep as an entertainment. You use sleep when you need it, as much as you need it, but not more. Because you know how it is. Our beds now, I mean, there's a whole science about making beds comfortable. and. Uh, the, the thing about that is you, we tend to sleep a lot more than we need. If we have an uncomfortable bed, we tend to get out of bed as soon as the body has had enough sleep because it's uncomfortable. So try it sometime. Try, I mean, like when you're camping, if, you've ever, if you go backpacking and you're just on a sleeping mat, camping mat, you'll notice that you may not have made this connection, but you notice you don't need as much sleep. Well, it's not that you don't need as much sleep. It's that you don't want to hang out in, on your quarter-inch light pad any longer than you need to. You get up. At some point, the sort of pleasantness of being prone sort of comes into balance with the unpleasantness of lying on a thin mat, you know, and then eventually it tilts the other way. And what arises in the mind is, I think I want to get up. You know, I know it's cold, but I still want to get up. I don't want to lie here anymore. And, you know, we're even willing to put a heavy pack on our back and start walking because just lying around isn't comfortable anymore. And this is the thing about, you know, when we create a lot of comfort for ourselves, what it tends to do is in, uh, allow us to indulge in this resting. Now, there's nothing wrong with resting, 
but we don't really learn much when we are resting. So for the Buddha, you know, food and the various sort of adornments or things that we own, what in Buddhism we call them requisites, and sleep, they're like medicine. That means that we use food and we use our possessions and our even, you know, the information, news and movies and sleep. We use it as medicine to support our deepest intention, our aspiration for our life. So I try to do this. I'm not I don't I'm not at all successful, so I don't want to paint the wrong picture, but you know, in terms of movies and other things I read and watch, I have the aspiration, and again I'm not saying I'm successful at this, but I do have the aspiration to only read things and watch things that support my deeper intentions, to be wise, to be relaxed, to be loving. Like I don't want to feed my mind, my heart, with things are, that are sort of sending me in the opposite direction. That, that doesn't make sense. And it's the same with sleep. Like I want, when I sleep, you know, at least that my intention is, I want to sleep in a way that supports health and well-being. I don't want to sleep, you know, for a length of time or in a way that supports denial. Like, you know, aversion to life. So let me just crash and disappear for a while in sleep and dreams. And same with food, you know. How much of the time are we using food as a way of sort of, you know, just sort of distracting ourselves from our lives? As opposed to nourishing the body and supporting the health in the body. So these are the eight precepts. The, these three that I just mentioned are like special medicine when you feel motivated. But the five basic precepts that the Buddha recommends for all lay people non-harming, non-stealing, or taking things that aren't given, refraining from sexual misconduct, false speech, and the use of intoxicants. Now these three, the last three of the five, they're not, they're kind of morally neutral. I mean, there's nothing inherently wrong with sex, and there's nothing inherently wrong with speaking, and even with intoxicants, except that these areas are highlighted because so much suffering tends to arise in the area of sex, in the area of speech, and when people are intoxicated. So the Buddha highlights them and says, because these areas are so uh, dangerous, so to speak, pay really close attention and, and, and be very clear about how you're going to relate to them. So what does sexual misconduct mean? Like explore what that actually means. How much uh, how much intoxication is skillful. You know, and even if for you a glass of wine is not unskillful, let's say you come to that conclusion, but you know people where a glass of wine is unskillful for them. Well, are we supporting those people by having a glass of wine? So we're, we're kind of responsible, not just for our own well-being, but for others' well-being. And these are, the, these are how we reflect on these now, tonight I want to talk a little bit about speech and also next week and, and uh, hear from people, too, about how you work, how you've worked with right speech. And the Buddha talks about five ways to train with right speech, five things to illuminate, tendencies to illuminate. Because remember, these trainings, they're just... Uh, windows into this moment-to-moment -moment interaction between our dispositions 
and the condition, the sense experience we're having in the moment. And in that mix, we're having intentions arising. And of course, a lot of those intentions have to do with this about to moment to say something or to refrain from saying something. You know, it revolves around speech, both in terms of our internal speech, the kind of dialogues we have inside the mind, but also what we are about to say out in the world. And we know, you know, how potent this is, how much our words, like once we set something in motion with our words, can have devastating consequences. Because one thing leads to another. We say something, then that person says something back to us. And before we know it, we hate each other. We're at each other's throats. It can take a long time. You always hear about siblings or former partners, you know, who had an argument. 20 years later, they're still not talking to each other, or 10 years later. And it's tragic. You know, probably all of us have been involved in something like that. So in the Dhammapada, one of the collection of verses from the Buddha, there's a phrase or stanza that goes like, better than a thousand sentences is one phrase upon hearing it uh, is the cause for peace to arise. And just to have that intention, like our words, in terms of what we speak in the world, I mean, it's even better, of course, not just what we speak outwardly, but also what we allow, the thoughts we allow to be spoken in the mind. But let's just use it externally for a while, because it's a little easier to work on that level. I mean, just to think of, if we think about this world of living beings as just like our community, that we belong to. And each word we speak, each phrase we speak, it's like medicine. Is it contributing to the health of ourselves and our families, our community, our world? Like, is it good medicine or is it not good medicine? <laughs> kind of a high bar, isn't it? <laughs> it cut off a lot of our speech. If we, if we think about it that way, you know, we... Um, we might not have much that we want to say. And that's a nice way to think about it. Like, is what we're about to say, is it an improvement on silence? And just to experiment. Now, you know, in, uh, in some ways it's, you know, depending on the way our minds are conditioned, some of us really need to prompt ourselves, encourage ourselves to speak up. Because the way we're doing violence to ourselves and others is by not speaking. And I mentioned this last week or maybe a couple of weeks ago. And other people, the way that we're causing violence is by speaking. So what we're training in is refraining. Like, well, maybe if I'm not clear, I'll just stay quiet. So the default is, like, if it's not clear whether what I'm about to say is skillful or not, I'll just be quiet. But if being quiet is already our default, like, I'm not sure I should say this, so I'll just be quiet. Maybe it's better to encourage yourself to speak up so that you can actually learn through trial and error, like, well, maybe that would, would be skillful to speak up and say this. Let's see. Maybe it helps clarify what's going on in the family or in the community or at work by speaking up. And we just have to see. See what it does to our hearts and minds. See what it does to the people that are involved. So you can find for yourself certain questions to ask yourself or, 
ways to illuminate you know, this interaction in each moment when you've got the present moment situation and all of the dispositions, habits that are being triggered in that present moment and all the intentions that are arising in the moment, that's the sausage making. It's messy. And you're going to see the force of greed and the forces of aversion and hatred and uh, you know, jealousy and envy and comparing mind and judging mind. And you're going to see all of that. We're going to see all of that. We do all the time if we're there, awake in the moment. But that's exactly where we want to be, aware of the intentions and just getting some clarity about like letting wisdom do its work to sort of see, oh, that has the feeling of unwholesomeness. This has the feeling or taste of wholesomeness. Of course, we're never going to be perfectly clear, but we're just trying to discern what's awake or what's rather alive, what's moving, moving in the sense of intentions or movements. They're volitional. Like we have a disposition, a habit energy, it gets triggered because of some sense experience. And that triggering, that sort of arising of a habit, it's really a movement in the mind or a movement in the heart. You know, we feel this. If we're awake, if we pay attention, we actually feel that movement, that kind of about to moment arising. And we want to like, get a sense, is it coming out of fear? Is it coming out of anxiety? Is it coming out of wanting, lust? Is it coming out of a, a sort of love, like a, a respect or a gratefulness? Or a, um, you know, a feeling of understanding, like understanding how it is, sort of a broad, deep perspective, understanding. So we want to get a sense of what is that movement arising out of? Is it coming out of a narrow place or really deep and wide place, which is just you know a metaphor for wisdom. So here's what the Buddha says. So there's uh, four areas to train. I don't know if I mentioned this already, but so truthfulness is one quality of right speech. Then another is, like, is what we're about to say truthful? And what do we mean by truthful? How do we assess that? And then are we trying, even if we're speaking the truth, are we using our words as a weapon? So, you know, this is slander. So we're, we're, we've got an agenda. Now, this can be very subtle. I mean, obviously, there are times when we're really basically trying to destroy somebody with our words. But a lot of times, you know, when I think, you know, even with my wife, who I love quite a bit and consider, you know, my best friend, I notice how I use words to sort of build myself up at the expense of putting her down. But it can be very, very subtle. But that's slander. I mean, that's a flavor slander. So there's, we want to remember, we want to practice these to the nth degree. So even if you're not regularly destroying people with your speech, you may be in a more subtle way sort of creating differences. And that's, that's where we work then at that level. So there's truthfulness, slander, using words as a weapon, and then harshness, like the actual tone of the voice. So we may not necessarily want to destroy somebody with our words, but just maybe out of habit where our words are charged. You know? And sometimes uh, they're charged, not because we even want an effect out there in the world, but just it's, our, it's like we're just venting in a way. It's just like we're getting, it's seemingly giving us something by being loud and obnoxious or dripping with uh, sarcasm or 
you know, whatever, whatever sort of particular tone. So here it's just being responsible for the tone of the voice. And the last one is looking at idle speech, like speech that just is extra, doesn't really serve any purpose, isn't helping anybody. And just getting a sense, learning to be mindful of that. So next week we'll talk about those last three, but tonight I want to spend a little bit of time with truthfulness and then open it up for discussion. So here's what the Buddha says about speaking the truth. Herein, someone avoids false speech and abstains from it. She speaks the truth, is devoted to truth, reliable, worthy of confidence, not a deceiver of people. Being at a meeting or amongst people or in the midst of her relatives or in a society or in the king's court and called upon and asked as witness to tell what she knows, she answers. <coughs> if she knows nothing, I know nothing. And if she knows, she answers, I know. And if she has seen nothing, she answers, I have seen nothing. And if she has seen, she answers, I have seen. Thus, she never knowingly speaks a lie, either for the sake of her own advantage or for the sake of another person's advantage or for the sake of any advantage whatsoever. And this is really pointing to this commitment to truthfulness. And it's, you know, what's really important about all of these ethical rules, in Buddhism, we're really coming from the depth outward into our expression, into the ordinary you know, events of our lives. It's not just like on the surface we want to be truthful in our interactions because being truthful is good. It's not really about that. It's really understanding in the depths of the mind or heart that we basically there is this tipping point. Are we taking refuge in truthfulness? Or are we taking refuge in delusion? And this is like a, a metaphor for a whole existential situation. I mean, the way the Buddha lays this out, you know, our predicament as a human being, is that, you know, it's like in Christianity, original sin, that for who knows what reason, our culture and, and individually, we have taken refuge in delusion, not in truthfulness. We have in a sense, uh, made a deal with the devil. And the devil in Buddhism is ignorance. It's not some external creature. It's this commitment or this dependence on misperception. And then we get, in a sense, addicted to misperceiving. So in Buddhism, the basic misperception is we see ourselves apart from all, from everything. So we have, because of this misperception, we construct a sense of self as opposed to other, this and that, good and bad. And we get this dualistic uh, perception of things. I'm here and the world's out there, right? Isn't that how it seems, mostly? And so this, you know, from a Buddhist point of view, or from the Buddhist point of view, is a misperception with very serious consequences. And so the whole point of taking up a spiritual practice is to correct this misperception. Like, to not assume that our view, our perspectives on the world, our understanding, not to assume it's correct, but to start again, you know, to start over, basically, with simply learning to see things as they are. 
and developing this commitment to truth. Like when we're mindful, by mindful we mean we're open to things as they actually are. We're feeling the breath as it actually is arising in the body. We're having a thought, we're knowing this thought is just a thought as it actually is appearing in the mind. We're not confused by it, the content of the thought, but we understand that whatever the thought is, a despicable thought, a beautiful thought, it's just a thought. So it's a commitment to truth. So when we work on this, you know, on a seemingly insignificant level, like what I say to my wife, all the little things we say during the day, it matters whether we're, we're kind of spinning the truth a little bit, like leaving part of the truth out because it supports, you know, whatever our ego maybe wants supported. But if, if we play loose with truthfulness, it really undermines our basic commitment to the path of awakening, which is a path of <clears throat> coming into alignment with the truth of things. And it really matters. So this commitment to truth is, uh, like in terms of our speech, it's really useful for us, like when we take it out into the world, all these little conversations that we have, to realize it's much bigger than this particular conversation we're having with the bus driver, you know or whomever, you know, where we just casually lie, we just sort of assume it's okay. But we don't necessarily notice the effect it's having on the mind or heart, that it's sort of reinforcing that truthfulness is uh, optional. And uh, some of you know that the Buddha's son, he left his home right after his son was born, when he was 29 years old, and decided presumably, I mean, obviously we don't know, but as the legend or as the teachings go, he decided out of compassion for the world, for his son, his wife, and the world at large, that it would be better for him to become a spiritual seeker than to stay as a prince, raise his son, be a partner to his wife, and take over for his father, take over as king after his father dies. He decided to become a seeker. But eventually... He, uh, after his inside and he became a teacher, he came back and his wife and many of his cousins and family members became students of his and had full awakening, just like the Buddha had, and his son also, but his son was quite young. But the first time he came to the town where he was uh, used to live, his wife said to his son, Rahula, see that guy? Go to him and get your inheritance. <laughs> So Rahula said that to his dad, the Buddha, who was, you know, a monk and teacher. And so the Buddha said, okay, you become a novice. So Rahula, at seven years of age, became a, a novice monk. And a few years later, as he was practicing with the other monks and nuns, the Buddha went to teach him. And he gave this very beautiful, simple teaching where he talked about, uh, you know, just the power of truthfulness. And, you know... The way it works is um, when a senior monk or a senior nun shows up for newer monks or nuns, that they would wash the feet of the senior person because, of course, you're walking barefoot and you get pretty messy. And then there you are in camp, and so they'd get some water and they'd wash your feet. And so Rahula does that for the Buddha. And then the Buddha takes the pot of water and throws some of it away, and there's just a teeny bit left, and he says... You know, just as there's only a little water left, 
most has been thrown away. Just so somebody who's willing to tell an intentional lie throws away most of the practice. And then he, I think he tips the bowl over and says, this is the, you know, this bowl is upside down. You flip your practice upside down if you're, if you could justify telling, intentionally telling a lie. And uh, he, then he holds the bowl up and he says, see how it's empty? Your practice will be empty if you're willing to tell an intentional lie. So he made it pretty graphic for this young boy, like how important it is. And then he gives a story about an elephant. And the gist of the story is, if you can justify telling a lie, Rahula, he's talking to son. If you can justify telling uh, a lie, you can justify any unwholesome action. And and goes on to talk about the importance of reflecting on truthfulness before you say something, while you're saying something, after you say something. So that you're reflecting, you know, was is what I'm about to say, is what I'm saying right now, is what I did say, is that in alignment with truth or not? Is it conducive to my well-being and the well-being of others or not? Is it skillful or not? Because it's not just if it's truthful that you can speak it. It has to be truthful. It has to be helpful. You know, and you have to speak it at the right time, the right tone of voice, right? Because we can we can use truth as slander. I mean, you can use truth to destroy somebody. That's not wise, useful speech. So it's not enough for it to be truthful. So before I open it up, I'll just share something. Uh, Reb Anderson is a well-known Buddhist teacher. Used to be the abbot of the San Francisco Zen Center. And uh, now lives at Green Gulch, a beautiful training center north of San Francisco. And he has a book called Upright, Being Upright, which is about ethical conduct. And uh, this is just a section that I thought might be useful to hear. It's his chapter on right speech. Not only is speaking the truth difficult when we are entangled in self-concern, but lying itself provokes anxiety because of feelings of shame and fear on being caught in the lie. Because we feel anxious and uncomfortable when we are aware that we are lying, it is easier for us to lie when we are unaware of doing so. Doesn't that sound right? And I, what comes to mind immediately are successful politicians. It's like when politicians know they're lying, they're not a very effective liars. You have to so much believe what you're saying, then it becomes compelling. Then what you say actually becomes more compelling. But it also, of course, is more dangerous and, uh, and ultimately more harmful for oneself. He goes on, he says, Thus carelessness and self-deception smooth the path of deceiving others. And we can lie more convincingly if we are lying to ourselves. With the aid of such denial, we can be confidently self-righteous even when we're lying. Furthermore, lying is easier if we lack the wholesome self-respect that comes with a commitment to speaking the truth. I want to read a little bit more, a couple pages on. The primary harm to yourself of not telling the truth is that after a while you forget that you're lying and your mind becomes deluded and confused. Telling the truth is really hard. It takes courage and attention. 
And you can't tell the truth all by yourself. You have to work it out with others. There are wrong times to tell the truth. The Buddha said that you should not speak when what you have to say is false and harms, when what you have to say is false but doesn't harm, or when what you have to say is truth as true and harms. If what you have to say is true and harmless, even then you should wait for the right time. The right time to deliver your message skillfully is when you and the other person are both being upright. You choose a time when you feel grounded and alert, when you are not afraid of alienating the other person, and when you feel the other person can receive what you have to say, even if it is painful to hear. He goes on and he talks about, which I think is, whether you like these words or not, it's just an important distinction between what's harmful and what's hurtful. And again, you may choose different words, but the idea is sometimes when we speak skillfully, it's going to cause pain. But that doesn't mean it is unskillful to say what we're saying. Sometimes that's exactly what the moment needs. That's what we need. That's what the other people involved need to hear. They need to hear these words, and even though it causes a lot of pain, it will help to clarify and ultimately be wholesome, uh, support the well-being of the people involved. And in the same way, sometimes not saying something because we're afraid of it being uh, hurtful is ultimately much more harmful to not speak what's hurtful. So we cause a lot of harm by not saying what needs to be said. So the idea is this, uh, you know, in spiritual life, we take the long view. We're not avoiding temporary pain if it's healing. You know, just like in terms of, you know, I just visited my nephew. I mentioned to some of you last week that uh, kind of shock in our family, my seven-year-old nephew just found out he has uh, cancer in his hip, a really serious uh, bone cancer, and started his chemo then just uh, Friday. And, you know, chemo is a nasty thing. I mean, what they, the kind of chemicals that they, they feed into you. And, uh, but the pain that arises in the chemo, in this case, is really useful because it causes the fast-growing cells to, to die gives the surgeons a chance to eventually remove what's left and hopefully you know everything will work out just fine so there are many examples of doing something that's painful be pain being healing many many this is true I mean just any of you who have been involved in intimate relationships whether it's you know partnership or just deep friendships we know that a lot of times the relationship has to cycle through deep pain in order for long-term health. So it would be nice to hear from people. We have 15 minutes. What you've been learning about truthfulness, how you've, uh, all the different ways that we've justified compromising truthfulness, and any questions you have about the talk tonight. What have you learned? What comes to mind? Yeah, Paul. Well, I don't know. I mean, I think this is the point of keeping it as an ongoing reflection instead of having absolute rules. And, and this is true with the precepts. So, you know, the precepts are designed to be 
ongoing trainings, not black and white rules. I undertake the training not to harm living beings. I undertake the training uh, to refrain from false speech, harmful speech. So it's a training. It's like I'm committing to the discerning. So when, when the intention arises to not say something that should be said or to say something that's false because it seems appropriate, then as the Buddha recommended to Rahula, we should reflect before we say that, that white lie. You know, what are the intentions? Is there fear involved? Is there greed involved? Like, what are the intentions behind the motivation to say that? Why we're saying it? What it what's alive in the mind? After we say it, what are the consequences of what we've said? What was alive in the mind? What was set in motion? How does the heart feel now? That's the only way we're going to know. You know, I think for sure there are a lot of times when I was at the hospital yesterday and uh, my sister-in-law was there and she was telling me that her daughter, who's a little older than the boy who has cancer, um, was, uh, keeps asking her about, what does sexy mean? What is sex? You know, she's, I don't know how old she is, maybe nine now. And, uh, you know, and so, you know, Ellen... Uh, doesn't want to lie, but at the same time isn't ready just to sort of lay everything out. And so, you know, there are times when we can uh, like be truthful enough. And this is especially true, like in, even in terms of our practice, like how much do we share with people? Well, part of it is really taking the time to understand what do they really want to know? And to kind of clarify, like, what are they interested in knowing? What are they ready to know? But it's a, there's no, I don't think there's any clarity here. I think we have to figure it out as we go. And this is generally the way it is with Buddhist ethics. If they're not black and white, it's moment to moment. It's getting in that moment, seeing what's arising, the intentions, and really getting a sense when we have an impulse to say something. It's not so much what is what we're saying correct, but what's it coming, what's fueling it? Is it greed, aversion, or is it something wholesome? Like we're trying to take care of somebody. And of course, even if it seems skillful, that doesn't mean it is. We have to reflect afterward and see if it actually turned out to be skillful. Yeah, thanks for the good question, Paul. Yeah, Emil. I'm struggling a bit with the word truth because it seems to me that we all see things differently based on our background and our dispositions and our sensing abilities, and uh, we can all have an intention to be acting honestly through our speech, but what I say I see and what you say you see may be two different things. Absolutely, yeah. So are, are you speaking of some sense of objective truth, or is it a, that, that exists out there, there is a truth that we need to be speaking, or is it subjectively my, my impression that this is the way it is? Yeah, it's a, it's a subjective. It has to be subjective. There's, that's the only reality we have is a subjective reality. But as a subject, as somebody with you know undertaking this commitment to non-false, not speaking falsely, um, we're committed to truth, and we know that uh, we know there's a sense of sort of falling away from truth. You know, like I know when I'm lying to you, right? There's no question in my mind, like when I'm manipulating the facts or not saying everything or saying something in order to get back at you. 
I mean, that's pretty obvious. But in the more subtle cases, we realize that the commitment to truth, a little bit like uh, Rev. Anderson was saying, it involves understanding that it's like a commitment to truth necessarily involves humility, like understanding the limitations of our perspective. But there's a truth in that. It's like that's a profound truth, understanding the limitations of our perspective. So if we speak from that perspective, that humility, like understanding the limitations of our perspective, that's a profound truth in the world. Right? So do you see that you can be committed to the truth without somehow, like part of that commitment to truth may be understanding that objective truth is, uh, is not available or is not relevant even. But, but, to, but to sort of move in the direction of an inclusivity, like including as much as we can be sensitive to, as much as we can be open to, so that uh, it's, it's uh, like uh, coming from a broader, deeper, wider place, what we say, how we understand things. Yeah, I think it's a good point. Yeah, Rick. Yeah, I've been, I've been thinking about this uh, you know, right speech the summer. But, um, this friend of mine died in, in July and he had cancer. And I was, I was with him a couple weeks before he died. He and his wife had a bunch of people over and I was like, you know, after a couple hours I was getting ready to go home. And I just sat with him. And his last words, you know, he said, I love you. And I said, I love you. And I left. And it was like, how perfect, you know, man. what else is it inside? And since then, I've just been thinking about it. It was kind of like the teaching that he left was sort of like, like if I knew that I was dying and I had days to live. Would I be saying this? Yeah. Would I be having this argument? Would I be having this conversation? You know, it's like all of us, you know, we, you know not necessarily know us, but it was like his parting gift was, was just this reflection on what is there to say. Yeah. And it was really beautiful. Uh -oh. I was kind of grateful to have that, that time with him. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that sort of idle chit-chat is always wrong, because sometimes, for whatever reason, people aren't comfortable with the silence. But they use sort of idle chit-chat as a kind of meta practice, you know, and a sort of repartee back and forth, especially among people who know each other well. Sometimes that's the only way they know how to say, I love you. And there's a lyric in one of Louis Armstrong's songs, maybe you know that. Uh, I forget exactly how it goes. I'll, I'll try to get it for next week. But yeah, yeah. It's just that, like all these sort of sort of commonplace gestures, whether it's physical, like shaking hands, or just the sort of give and take of conversation. It's just a way of people saying, "I love you," but that's not a sort of socially access, access, uh, acceptable to say that out loud in that direct way. So they have people have other ways. Like, I'll see you later. But, so again, it really comes down to what is the flavor of the intention behind the words 
is it really that simple? Just like someone can say, I love you and not mean it. You know, they say it because they feel like, well, that's what I'm supposed to say. You know, when, you know, like when you're really angry at your parents and you're leaving and you say, well, I love you, Mom. (laughs) And what you're really feeling is, I'm so glad to be leaving or something like that. Thanks for that nice story, Rick. What else comes to mind? Yeah, Lewis. It, it seems to me that as the world gets smaller and smaller, and we each can only talk about the part of the world we see, that we have an opportunity to learn from one another as far as what that person is seeing from over there, or over there, or over there. And in the process of listening, uh, trying to figure out how our troops interact, where they meet, or how they're connected, mm-hmm. which is like asking, how are we connected? Yeah, and it, it goes re- that point goes really deep, and I think it connects what Emil was saying earlier, which is that uh, there's just so much to learn through real intimacy. I mean, just like being intimate with our experience is profoundly educating, being intimate with another human being is also, or a community, is also profoundly educating. And on the level that you talked about, that also, the more we get, like the more we're learning on that level that you talked about, the more what's revealed is our sub- that we're stuck in subjectivity. And that, that sort of undermines the arrogance of thinking that our view is something more than subjective. And so all of a sudden, we start relating to the points of view that we have in a totally different way. Instead of thinking that my opinion is the truth, we start understanding it's just an opinion, it's just a point of view, and there are countless points of view out there. And uh, that kind of humility is really uh, a big step in the path, you know. Of course, not just a one-time step, but a many-time step. Thanks for that. Did you have a comment? Yeah, I'm Rose. Um, I came to write speech very often, and my first endeavors with it simply to consort because I pointed out to me how much and it was mindless. I was not aware of how much you can call. Can you hear Rose? Yeah, okay. And uh, it was uh, a lot of work. It was a lot of work. Yeah. And uh, and then that evolved into me noticing that the swearing also had to do with my, how much I disliked things and how much I wanted people to know yeah. what I didn't like. And I realized I defined a lot of myself by what I didn't like. Yeah. And that's what I was spending time on in my mind, and that's what I was sharing with people, and yeah, and this is exactly what we need to hear because it's such a good example of the depth and power of something like you. I forget exactly how you said it, Rose, but you made it sound like well, this is just a simple thing. But you see, nothing simple. It may, may be that 
where you started with sort of a superficial like swearing, but to do, actually do the work, you got really deep into the sort of sort of structures of your dispositions, and really and to see that it's not just a matter of saying I'm not going to swear. It's really like doing the rewiring. We have to see that impulse over and over again, like any addiction. And we have to refrain from doing it, starve the addiction, basically, or starve the habit to swear until it's no longer there, and to create other habits, and to really see what, where that external manifestation, where it's coming from. And this is like the sausage. We don't want to see where it's coming from, but it's so healing to see that that aspect of it. I think we need to leave it here. Why don't we just take a moment and let go of the words. It's always nice to appreciate being here together. And taking a moment to appreciate the usefulness of these teachings. And just to visualize being part of this path of men and women through the centuries, interested in waking up, interested in bringing mindfulness, wisdom, and compassion into their lives. And we do this, we undertake this path as a way, deep way of taking care of ourselves and taking care of all beings without exception. May our lives be a cause for peace in the world, peace in our hearts, freedom from suffering. And thanks everyone for coming again. I have a couple of quick announcements. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.